0: Entrepreneur Circle is an On Air Brands production and a proud member of the On Air Brands Network. Hi, this is James Alventure. Thank you for listening to Eric Cabral's Entrepreneur Circle. On this episode...
1: A lot of people view failure as a stopping point rather than a waypoint. And if you view failure as a stopping point, then you give up because you're at the end. If you view failure as a waypoint where you just stop to rest and then keep moving past it, It changes your perspective around failure. It's no longer this devastating thing. You have now entered the entrepreneur's circle.
2: Hey there, folks, and welcome back to another episode of the Entrepreneur's Circle. My goal is to inspire you by chatting with entrepreneurs about their successes, their failures in life and in business. I am your most humbled host, Eric. Cabral, a real estate investor, a creative, and I've been in the creative industry for over 20 years. Got my start in New York City as a junior art director, made my way to the top of the corporate ladder and realized there was the proverbial glass ceiling. So I hung up my corporate hat and started my own creative agency called On Air Brands, where we broadcast your brand and your message using podcasts and social media marketing, along with the help of my other company, PodMax, which hosts live and virtual events for top performing entrepreneurs to get them on podcasts and to learn from our keynote speakers and our massive network. So to learn more about that event, hit up podmax.co and sign up for the next event. They're happening each and every month. So as always, please like, subscribe, and share this podcast with two to three of your friends to continue growing our community and to help others grow from the knowledge shared here and learned here on this podcast. And before we jump into the show, I'd like to share some of what our sponsors, partners, and good friends have to offer you. Hey there, folks, and welcome back to the Entrepreneur's Circle. I am your most humbled host, Eric Cabral, and as usual, I have an amazing guest with us today who I am eager to introduce to you. So welcome, Trevor lawbear to the Entrepreneur's Circle.
1: Thank you so much, Eric. It's great to be here.
2: Yeah, we had the fortune of working and meeting together at our last Podmax event, and I just want to thank you for being a part of that, brother, and also all the stuff that you came to to the table with in helping that community. You know, introducing me to your family, and you know, getting to know what you guys do. And you know, I see uh, blood runs uh, really well and and inspirational throughout that family. So it's really good to to get to chat with you here on this show. And then anyway, we could. Also help your mom's new show. As we were talking before the, the the mics were turned on here, I'm more than happy to plug what she's doing too because uh, I think she's it's needed. You know the, the the community that she's speaking to, but we'll get into that later. Let's first get into what Trevor is all about. He is the founder of Day Optimizer, which is an, a magnificent tool to help entrepreneurs and consultants convert their daily to-dos into a daily schedule so that you can get more of the important stuff done. So Trevor. Before we get into all of the wonderful things that you have in your tool set to help uh, entrepreneurs you know, optimize their days, let's start by asking, and I wanna know a little bit more since I, I already met your mom and, and, and gotten to know you a little bit, is what was it like growing up at the dinner table?
1: <laughs> well, it, it, I think it was interesting. So both my parents are entrepreneurs, right? they are both definitely classic self-made entrepreneurs with fairly little training, right? My father um, immigrated from Germany. And so he had apprenticed over there um, as a, a paper hanger, uh, also as a painter. And so when he came over here, he worked for someone for a year or two and then started his own business. Um, so much of the, the logistics of how to run a business, he had to learn himself. Um, my mother, my grandmother, my mother's mother, Ran Tupperware for years. So she had grown up with a very entrepreneurial mother. And, and then she, like her her mother opened, um, a little figurine store. So then when she started, she started doing, she just doing Tupperware and Mary Kay when we were young. And then in my teenage years, she owned a collection agency. She would then was also independent, like a sales agent, all sorts of different things. So there was constantly talk the the vibe on entrepreneurship was constantly around and and then of course once we hit old enough to help out with the business then you know I was helping out like you know I got my first computer when I was nine so I very quickly learned how to type so then I was the one who was typing all the letters and like figuring out how to make the computers work do my dad's um, quotes on spreadsheets and all sorts of stuff.
2: So you Definitely had the DNA of an entrepreneur from the get go. You sound like you were very organized at a young age. You were able to jump headfirst into other businesses, the family businesses. So it totally makes sense, you know, where you are now and what you're building. So let's let let let's get into a little bit more about, you know, what you were witnessing. What do you think was sort of the chemical makeup that helped to inspire you to not only, you know, start day optimizer but anything else early in the days of your entrepreneurship. What was what was some of your earliest memories of creating a business?
1: <laughs> I don't really remember my earliest business, but my parents will tell me about it. And it's when I was 5 years old, I would paint the, paint these little paintings um and I would sell them to my relatives for a nickel each and we put them in the mailbox and they'd have to come pick them up. And, um, so that was my first business. I don't know. I probably only made like 25 cents or something from that, but, um, uh, and then moving up to a broader aspect, I think one of the key drivers that helped, that has helped me through all the years of, of creating businesses, um, and I definitely get this from my parents, is that, that concept of grit, of perseverance through uh, difficulty. And in fact, I was on a, uh, recently talking to someone about failure. And a lot of people view failure as a stopping point rather than a waypoint. And if you view failure as a stopping point, then you give up because you're at the end. If you view failure as a waypoint where you just stop to rest and then keep moving past it, it changes your perspective around failure. It's no longer this devastating thing. It's just, oh, I learned from that now I'm gonna do something new. And now I'm gonna do something new. And I think, especially when you're building a business where you, you don't know what you don't know, conditions in the market are constantly changing. New competitors are coming up. You're discovering new things. You're learning new things about how to run businesses. Um, you are just constantly going to have like failures. You know, maybe not, failures that kill your business, but constant little failures. So that ability to um, persevere through failures and just say, oh, this is a learning opportunity. Um, that was probably the biggest thing that came out of my childhood was that you didn't ever stop just because you hit a difficulty. You just did something else. You figured out a way to work around it.
2: Yeah, that's a beautiful way to grow up. And it's a beautiful way to keep the ball moving and keep, building and creating something new because if you grow up in a household which is is the household I grew up in where failure is not an option and that mindset can really like you said paralyze you to be afraid to do anything and 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 not explore or or attempt to do something because you think that you might fall on your face and you know i've noticed that your your background and your history is heavily steeped in in sort of developing things and creative interactive things and doing things even um for the navy is 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 my understanding here were were you able to build and create something there as well Uh, from the very beginning of your career it looks like you were always developing something and, and and leading up to what you're doing now but what was sort of the things that you remember was a pain point that you thought you know man this is something that i think was day optimizer something that you thought you needed and a tool that you created for yourself and then you therefore gave it to the, to the, the world or what was the evolution of what you created
1: um so for day optimizer it was both a tool for myself and for others so i had I started the business with this website called Strategic Life Tools that help people do life planning, give them tools for life planning, like imagine yourself in five years, where are you today, creating a life portfolio to see, analyze what your time looks like today. And I was doing group masterminds with those. And I quickly found out through that process that people, I really wanted this business to be a subscription-based business. Because my previous business was an enterprise software sales business, which every month you start sales at zero. And SaaS businesses, you start every month at the same revenue as previous month, minus churn. So it's a whole different way of running a business. And I wanted to explore that model. And so at some point, I came to realize that helping people think about their life more strategically, developing life plans, was not going to be a SaaS business. Because people did it during cusp events after a divorce, when they retired, when they hit some critical junction in their life. And so I was evaluating what my new business model was and then people just kept saying, I don't have enough time to even think about life planning. It's like, okay, all these people have this problem with time management. So then I went back to this technique that I've been doing for like eight or 10 years, this three step process for building a daily schedule. And I basically created a whole tool for for my group saying, Here's to teach you how the process is. Here's an Excel spreadsheet that you can do the process in. And here's some paper worksheets if you don't want to use Excel. Um, so I kind of laid it all out for them. And then it was like a month or two later, I realized, wait a second, that would be way more effective as an actual software tool, not an Excel spreadsheet. And I've got so many more, um, concepts and ideas to add into time management. And then that's, that's how I launched day optimizer.
2: Were you always someone that had control over your time and your schedule or was it something that you were always working towards? You know, how how do you, how did you view your, your earlier version of yourself?
1: I've always been fiercely independent. So I've always had a hard time kind of like fitting into the, the regular rhythm of stuff. Um, I'm also a night owl. So when people are there like, Hey, you know, Everyone should be, like, awake in the morning and do this. It doesn't work for me, just biologically. That's not how my system works. Um, so, certainly in the early days, I wasn't in control of my time. Like, when I worked at the Navy, um, you know, we had standard hours. Um, and I was, you know, told what to do. Um, but even then, I was given a lot of flexibility, in there There wasn't, like, a huge amount of management oversight. Um, I mean, there was oversight, but it wasn't, like, a micromanagement situation. Um, and then shortly after my first software job in silicon valley like i i started working for a company in san francisco we got bought out by a company in san, uh silicon valley and then i went into consulting and then that's when i really had control of my own time and then since then i've almost always been running my own businesses or working remotely when i sold my last business i worked two years remotely for the choir, so i've been in control of my own time so that whole time yeah i've been very much in control
2: Awesome. Tell us a little bit about that business, the one that you sold. What, what was that about?
1: Uh, so that was an uh, enterprise uh, visual analytics business. So we produced um, a treemap heat map software that allowed people to analyze portfolio type data. So that might be a stock portfolio, a product portfolio. Um, it could be a portfolio of machines. And then we sold that to large enterprises. To integrate into their software, so our customers were like Walmart, Dell, the U.S. Army, um, big companies that would then integrate this into their software to help their users analyze their data more effectively. Wow!
2: So, how long did you run and operate that business before you sold it? Ah, uh, that was twelve years. Wow! You ran it for twelve years. Jeez, Louise! Was when so when you started that company, was the end game to eventually sell it, or did you figure this is going to be my lifelong, you know? Passion or goal, and then I'm just going to retire or hand this off to the next generation. What was the yeah, plan? definitely
1: not um, the idea. I'm going to hand it off. Uh, I do remember consciously at some point going. Um, software companies are almost impossible to become legacy businesses that you or family businesses because software changes so quickly; it has a limited lifetime. So there's very like there's very few software businesses alive today that were alive even in the 80s much less the 70s Hmm. right like if you just go back this one lifetime there's like almost no software businesses and usually those are like the ones that were able to like really develop multiple like IBM right Um, which has so many different lines of business and certainly it's not exclusively software so yeah I had no no uh, idea that I was going to like keep running it for the rest of my life it was definitely a sale
2: yeah, so so we're talking about Lab Escape here, which you ran for twelve years before you sold it, correct? Yeah. So while you were building and operating that, I mean, did you have large teams, or you outsourcing? Did you have a brick and mortar? What what did that look like?
1: So most of it um, was built with remote contractors. Um, I had some employees, and at different parts during that lifecycle, I actually had an office um, where people would come in, but. I founded that company in Asheville, North Carolina, where I live today. And back then there were not a a rich ecosystem of tech employees here, or the type of employees that could help with software companies. In fact, my law firm and my accounting firm were originally in Raleigh, and then I moved them up to Boston, because like finding a law firm in Asheville that knew the intricacies of software law and software accounting, it just wasn't happening at that point. so, yeah, I was kind of forced to build remotely from that perspective. Um, and then, yeah, built most of the team remotely.
2: So, you were ahead of your time because, right, this isn't everyone trying to pivot to that now. Most companies are trying to figure out remote workforce, no more brick and mortar. How do I manage a team from afar? Those are a lot of the challenges as business owners today are faced with you know, what was happening. So, how did you manage the team and, and their time you know, from a distance?
1: Um, well, I don't think you, a key thing when you're managing a remote team is not to manage their time to manage their output, you know, focus on what your team is producing and saying you need to produce results, not you need to spend X amount of time. So it does kind of upend the model of, oh, I need butts and seats at the office from nine to five, you know, and and in that case, it doesn't even matter if they're productive. So in a lot of cases, by shifting the mindset of how you approach managing employees in a remote work scenario, you're actually shifting into a more productive way to manage your employees, because now you're shifting to what's actually creating impact on your business, not the busy work that, you know, your employees might be doing or whatever they're doing when they're just sitting at the office. Yeah,
2: I love that. So... You sound like a good leader. You sound like someone that understands the intricacies of the human mind and also not being a micromanager, which is critical to running a business. So how did you get there? How did, what were some of the books or influences or mentors that you had in your circle to, to be able to think in this, this way?
1: Oh, um, well, one, I think I'm kind of biased in that way in that um, I have an inherent faith in people. That people are going to be honest and going to do the right thing. Um, I believe that if you give people trust, then they will rise to the occasion. And I also hate management. So uh, while I am, can be a good leader, I tend to be a bad, like actual manager. Um, I much rather tell you, Oh, this is what I need to get done and let you figure out how to do it and give you the space to do that. So I tended to hire people who n- didn't need much management, who could just kinda see the vision and run with it. Um, and that was, I guess, due to my own laziness or my own um, personality quirks where I don't wanna be the person who's sticking my fingers in the pie and trying to control everything.
2: Yeah, well, you're the atypical visionary, right? In the, in the, in the E-Myth by Michael E. Gerber, talks about the visionary the manager, and then the technicians that do the work. So you clearly are the visionary when it comes to your businesses and and, and your role in a company and the team. So you, I imagine, put managers, managers in place to do those things, to take care of what needed to be done on a daily, weekly basis. So I love the idea of entrepreneurs that were basically entrepreneurs for the majority of their life, because for me, it was there, but I didn't act on it until later in life. So I like talking to entrepreneurs that took the leap earlier and were able to really leverage all that experience, especially running a company for 12 years. I mean, that's admirable, you know, to be able to to do all of that and then eventually sell it. So what was that process like uh, during the course of maybe somebody approaching you, were you expecting it when they said, hey, I'm interested in partnering or acquiring, and then talk to me about the transition from, this is what you did for 12 years of your life, what that felt like, and then also, how did you transition to the next phase and, and, and figure out what did you, want, you wanted to do next?
1: So we did not uh, sell through an incoming offer. We actually went through a sales process. So I, um, this was what, I guess 2013, 2014, uh, sold a six-figure deal to Walmart, and it was at the time when Tableau was, right around the time Tableau was going public or about to preparing to go public, and we are in the same space, visual analytics. So, it's a hot market right then, just closed this big, you know, major deal with this, you know, major company. I'm like, now's a good time to sell. So, I actually hired an M&A advisor to help bring me through that sales process. I hired a coach to help bring me through the sales process, and then um we basically ran a sales process to sell a company and it is very similar to a sales process to sell um a product as well um but yeah you're you're compiling a list of leads, you're reaching out to those people, you create um a prospectus that you go out and you um say this is here's your one sheet about the company, here's the details about the company, you're doing meetings it's a, it's a process so we just ran the process and in the end, we're able to sell it to a Boston-based company. Um, and then that transition was, you know, a, a tricky transition, um, you know, becoming an employee again, but there's also some relief there because like now, you know, I don't have to worry about the company. It's not really mine anymore. And at, at 12 years, I was kind of burned out. Like I didn't want to keep running the company. So um, there's this sense of relief in that um we did do an earnout and earnouts are tricky and we were able to kind of manage and navigate that but we had to ne- renegotiate the earnout because um of course if you do a 2 or 3 year earnout the strategy the acquirer's company is probably going to change during that time and it did so we had to kind of renegotiate what that earnout looked like to keep it aligned with the strategy of the company and make sure there was benefit going on so um that can always be tricky sometimes those go totally south um for me it didn't go um didn't go south, but like it was another one of those challenges in there to do. And then, of course, the shifting of the strategy is when you sell the company, you think, oh, this is what it's going to look like after it's sold. But then, you know, a year or two later, conditions are completely different. So um, those things will change the direction of what you sold.
2: Yeah, this is this is brilliant. Uh... This is all I think and talk about of late. So I'm glad we're talking and we can continue talking offline because we're not going to have enough time here. But I just wanted to make sure the audience, you know, no listener left behind when you referenced the M&A company that is a mergers and acquisition company, right? When it comes to businesses and um, just like with real estate, folks, you know, everyone knows about residential. You hire an agent and a broker to represent you on the sale of your house or the purchase of a house. So if you think of it in those terms, it's a good way to sort of comprehend what you're discussing here. You know, when you want to sell a company or buy a company, you hire a company that can represent you or represent them and then put it list it. right? There's a whole, it's very similar to real estate, right? There's a listing. Can you just a little bit talk about that a little more, how, you know, that process goes when you list it sort of like the MLS with real estate, you know, the, the, there's a list of companies that are for sale. And then like, how did that all work out for you? What did that look and feel like?
1: So first, I want to make the, a little bit of a distinction, and, and you are right, is that an M&A advisor or M&A um, advisory service is it acts like a broker, but they are also somewhat different than um, a business broker who tends to sell traditional businesses. Um, so I work with a fellow, Tom Metz, who basically focuses on helping sell companies whose assets are intangible, right, so software knowledge-based type companies it tends to be a very different process than selling like a service firm or like a traditional brick and mortar business. So if you're selling a restaurant, you're selling an accounting firm. A lot of times what a business broker will do is create a valuation for your business. Then you list it. They help you get all your finances in order and, and stuff like that. But the, the business model is a known business model. And someone acquiring that is acquiring it either to run it, or because they're trying to consolidate, but there's some very specific reasons that people acquire that. And in that case, business listing services work really well. While we did eventually list on some of the listing services, and one of the, the, the lead that did, we sold to did come through on those services, um, we also ran a strategic sales process. And that's where you're actually going, doing cold calling to companies. So no listing, no one knows the company's for sale, and you're actually pitching what is the unique value that this company gives to that company. And it's um, how you sell the business depends upon different things. You could sell it based upon pure revenue, but very few people buy a, do a strategic purchase on pure revenue. So there's two in the M&A, in the mergers acquisition world, there's strategic purchases and financial purchases. So financial purchase, I'm going to buy your company because it's throwing off X amount of money. Great. Or I think I can come in and kind of shape up your operations. So it's throwing off X amount of money, but I'm buying it as a money making operation strategic. I'm buying it because it helps add a multiplier to my company in some way. So the revenue is more now used as just a a justification that the rest of the product is there. So I might be buying you based on the product based on your customer base because I want to move into a new market. Based on the team, because I want to acquire your team. So there's several different things that a strategic um, partnership sale would go. Because we were, it was a unique um, visual analytics software tool. The visual analytics software tool was, uh, market was hot. Um, we pitched it as a technology purchase. So it was uh, around that. Um, so then in that case, yeah, our sales process is a little bit different than a traditional business broker, but. Similar sort of things where you're trying to figure out what is the key value that an acquirer is going to do, get from this. And then you tweak the pitch based upon who, which person you're kind of cold calling.
2: So does the broker help you with that pitch?
1: Yes. So the broker helps you uh, create the whole pitch. Uh, you're going to create an executive summary that's usually like a two page summary um, or one page summary if you can get it, but usually it's two pages. Um, and then you get your sales prospectus helps you compile a list of potential targets. So they're going out um, and developing who we're going to contact at those. Then you start using your network to figure out how can I get an introduction into some of those people. Um, and then uh, the the MA advisor will run the process of just calling all those people and trying to get in touch with them. Sometimes you're helping with that. It's definitely, um, even if you hire an MA advisor, it's not like you're throwing it over the fence and letting them run with it. I I spent at least half my time selling the company. So, but yeah, then they then they run through the process and then they help in the negotiation. So it really helps to have that, you know, in fact, I remember Alistair saying it's like he was really impressed that we had an M&A advisor during the process. It increased the value of the company just to have the M&A advisor. And then he could, he was the one who was making the offers and doing the negotiations. So... It gives you that little bit of buffer in the same way that a real estate agent does when you're buying a house. You don't go and try to negotiate the price by yourself. You let the agent do that. And by having an M&A advisor or a business broker, while you're going to pay them for that service, I believe a good broker clearly pays for itself just in that negotiation process, but also just in the fact that the second you bring a broker to the table, the other person knows you're serious. And it's going to be, you're going to get a higher price just because of that.
2: Yeah, it's brilliant. Oh, I'm so, so glad I did not expect this part of the conversation to go uh, where it's going. This is great. This is awesome. I have so many more questions. <laughs>
0: on-air brands has changed the game. There'll never be a day from here forward when you and I and our companies don't need to be on the air. Every brand needs to be on the air, but so few know that. So it's great to work with a group that are ahead of the curve and to find a company that has been built on the core foundation of the future of marketing. If you're ready to broadcast your brand like they've done for my brands, take the next step and make a change that can transform your business. Reach out to On Air Brands today. That's onairbrands.com. Yes, onairbrands.com.
2: One of them is well a statement and and I want to find out if you can confirm this statement or not, is a friend of mine, James Altucher said that it's harder to sell a company than it is to start one. Do you find that statement to be true?
1: Yeah, I would say that's probably true.
2: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) In your experience, right? Because it's easy when we're uh, visionaries, we can start something honeymoon phase begin the company, get the LLC, get the paperwork, whatever, start it and just build and create. That's fun.
1: Yeah. I I think, I I guess what I would say is it depends upon what your definition of start is, you know, like getting to month one in the company. Yeah. That's obviously super easier. Is it like getting to where you're profitable and growing and, you know, paying out X amount? Well, then we're starting to get into the, the, gray zone of like well selling a company might be easier it depends upon um depends a large amount about the company you know a lot of people too many people when they sell a company are focused on their top line revenue and aren't thinking through the fact that it's your net revenue like for a traditional business again if it's if it's a financial purchase um if it's a strategic purchase then all bets are off the table um Because it's what value you bring to the business. So one, the same business can be worth like, you know, $100,000 to one business and $10 million to another business. You know, that's the, 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 the the range for a strategic purchase. Whereas for a financial purchase, you know, I'm looking at what your net revenue is, right? What's my payback period? So if you're making a million dollars in revenue, you know, and you've got a 10% profit margin, that means I'm able to get $100,000 back. Because if I buy your business for a million dollars, it's only going to take me ten years to get my money back. Two million dollars, twenty years. There's no way you're selling a million-dollar business with a ten percent profit margin for two million dollars. But a lot of people will say, like, "Oh, but I'm making a million dollars. It's got to be worth at least a million dollars." It really mm-hmm. depends upon what this margin is. You're at a fifty percent margin. Totally different, you know. Totally different business. Mm-hmm. Totally different yeah. metrics. So. Yeah,
2: this is great, man. I'm trying to keep up with you. You know, you're going 100 miles an hour, and I'm running alongside you. I'm like, oh, so hopefully the listeners aren't being left too far behind. But they have the option to rewind and play back. Um, but this is great. This is this is a a masterclass in and of itself for for acquiring or thinking of uh, acquiring businesses or selling your business, which is, I think, going to be what's going to come out of this current state of the economy, where it's just perfectly timed, right? Aside from, you know, in 08 and 09, it was all about real estate. I think it's all gonna be about small businesses now, Uh, companies coming online, a lot of baby boomers, as you know, are are running businesses for many, many years and ready to dip their toes in the sand. So I forget statistically, if you're still following, you know, this space, there's a high percentage of businesses that are gonna come online or just close. Close and not even really consider selling when they should, because they're successful. But they're just done. They're they 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 just want to they just want to close the doors and 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 get on to the next chapter. So this is really good, man. I, uh, whew, uh, I'm excited about this and knowing that you have way more knowledge than I do when it comes to this. And I, I plan to pick your brain. I'm curious though about the earnout. So if you want to describe that to the audience, what that means, but then also. How did it feel to be an employee in your own company? Was that difficult for you every day? And were you just like, peel the band aid off? I, I, I want out. Just give me my check. <laughs> How did it feel?
1: Um, so, what an earnout is, it's a mechanism to bridge the gap between two different prices, right? Um, so, if the acquirer is saying, I want to pay price X for the business, and the seller is saying, but I want price X plus Y, we have that Y difference, and how do we handle that? And from a a buyer's perspective, it's kind of a risk mitigation strategy. And because if I buy your business, and it doesn't work out, and I hand you all the cash up front, you've got the cash, you know, there's... You can create what are called callback provisions and can get some of it back, but it's it's tricky. So instead, what you can do is say, let's set conditions around where I will pay you the rest of that money, that why. So if sales hit this, if um, we hit these milestones, whatever that is, you can get really creative in what those are. Um, then that's what um, that's when you get paid the additional money. And so in theory, that keeps the buyer happy because they're paying a lower initial price and only have to pay for performance after that. And it keeps the seller happy because they actually get the target number they want. A lot of the trickiness comes in, in that the earnout assumes that again, the strategy of the company stays exactly the same post acquisition during the earnout period and earnouts two to three years is not unusual for that. Um, and that the accounting, a lot of times people will get the accounting wrong on the earnouts. Like a lot of times there's a, you want to focus on like top line revenue if you can, because it's very easy to kind of manipulate your net margin. And so sometimes people feel they got screwed because the acquirer manipulated the net margin if they did it on net. Um, but even top line isn't perfect because, uh, you know, if you start packaging products together, you know, and for instance, for us, um, we had a, a, a desktop product and, and enterprise products that we were selling, but we also had a software development kit that integrated into other software. And a large part of the sale was on that software development kit. So we integrated into the Techimetric software to create this product called Amaze for them. And or we had a product called amazement then integrated in. But then there was the other products that were still being sold by Labscape that weren't related to the main business. So our earnout was tied into the Lab Escape products, not the integration, because it wouldn't make sense to say, okay, we're integrating this now. How do we allocate? What portion of the revenue is due to this new feature that we introduced to the product? You can you can see it gets really messy in there. Um, so. That's one of the reasons people say to avoid earnouts if you can. And that is also my recommendation when anyone is selling a business and definitely probably also buying a business because you don't want to get into a contentious situation with the acquirer. It distracts you from the, it distracts you to do that. So, um, use earnouts as a last resort when there's no other way to bridge the value gap.
2: Now would you recommend sort of a, a more of a short term earnout rather than it going into 2 or 3 years is there is there such thing as like okay we only need you on for another 6 months to a year so that we get you know the institutional knowledge from you and your team and then and then we'll take it from here is, is that something common that you've noticed
1: Yeah, I mean that's one way to mitigate the the downsides to earnouts is shorten the time. You know, basically it's paying attention to the right metrics and shortening the time. You know yeah. Those are two things yeah. to reduce the risk of earnouts.
2: Now, did they did they hold on to one hundred percent of your team or founder? Were there were there other founders that left with you or stayed behind?
1: When we sold the company, I joined the new company and my other co-founder didn't. Um, he was um, on sales though buying at the product side, so they didn't need him. So um, yeah, I, I joined the company. He didn't. <laughs>
2: All good stuff man. I could keep keep asking you questions about this but uh, let's let's get into what you're currently doing and how you really help entrepreneurs with managing their time and their days and you figured out another tool that could really really help people you know get get better more efficient. so let's jump into how and why you created this.
1: So the the new product is day optimizer. It's a, a time management web app. It helps you kind of do time blocking and create a daily schedule. And I, um, first I developed a technique probably eight or ten years ago, uh, which was this three step technique for creating a daily schedule that kind of leverage how our brains work to create a more effective daily schedule. And so I've been doing that technique for years on paper, on two index cards. And when I decided, when I was wrapping up my contract after selling Lab Escape, I was trying to think of what I wanted to do next, and I really wanted to help individuals to kind of reach their potential more. And so the first iteration of that business was a a membership site called Strategic Life Tools that helped people kind of develop life plans, think strategically about their life, what they were doing today, and how they could shift that um, to achieve their goals. I quickly found out that that was not the business I wanted to run. it had a different business model than I wanted and during one of the group mentorship meetings found out that a lot of people were struggling with time management so I went back to that tool I had developed and developed it further into person excel spreadsheet and then it became the application known today as day optimizer and then since then I've kind of been extending that by adding additional concepts around time management that kind of leverage what we know about neuroscience and how our brains work to help us reason with time better and then manage that time better uh, throughout our day.
2: Can you talk about some of the, the unique aspects of, of what you've built that you find is, you know, the unique qualifier? What is it different? Well, how, how can people start to realize, yeah, this is, this is for me, this tool is different than the other tools?
1: Yeah, so one of the first things I often uh, tell people, which then people go, oh yeah, that totally makes sense, is that Adaptamizer has this concept of done today versus done forever. So if you're using a task list, right? And you've got a bunch of tasks that you're going to do today um, and you work on it, but you don't finish it, right? You can't actually click the check mark on that task list because if you do, it gets archived, right? It disappears. So you just leave it on your task list and the next day, Some task managers now have automatic rollover, so it rolls over or it says overdue. Either way, it's not very satisfying. And throughout the day, whenever you go back and look at that task list, there's that item that you already worked on today that's still unchecked, so it keeps distracting you, right? So the concept of done today is twofold. The first thing that it does is it gives you that dopamine hit by checking it off. So if I can check it off done today, it crosses it out. I get my nice little dopamine hit. It also grays it out. So it's not when I go back to my list, I'm not seeing it anymore, right? Like it's not I, I know I worked on it, so it's not distracting me. But it doesn't get lost the next day. It appears as an option again. So you, it keeps appearing until you mark it done forever. Once you mark it done forever, then it disappears from your task flow and it's just like a normal task manager. But this that one concept helps you like get these dopamine hits, which will, you know, gives you the satisfaction, it also happens to increase your focus and increase your motivation. So you kind of like build this um, virtuous engine into the software.
2: So let me tell you what I use, and I don't know if the audience or somebody's listening that's gonna relate, because I can relate to some of the things you're saying, But then. I may need you to repeat exactly how it's different from what I'm doing, which I don't think is, is optimal or efficient. So, you know, I, I, try to, I try to manage my day or my weeks based off my calendar. But then, of course, you know, by doing that, for anyone who's wondering what that is, is, is blocking one day specifically for creative tasks or a half a day, and then some days for buffer, administration, emails, things like that. But then I go to the to-do list. I go to my version of whatever today Op- day optimizer is, and um, you know for that that's Apple, right? I, I got their to do list, which isn't the best tool. But like you were mentioning, there are micro tasks within one task, and I don't normally break those down. I'll just put a reminder, like send Trevor that email. But meanwhile, there are five things attached to that send Trevor an email. I have to go look up this, 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 the things that you're asking for. Maybe I, I said I'd, I'd, I'd provide for you. So anyway, like you said, I can't just check it off, even though I've worked on a ton of things really in relation to that task. So it just gets taller. The list of to-dos get taller and taller and taller. Yeah. and Eventually, it's not on my screen anymore. I can't see it on my phone because it's not all the way at the top, but it's still stuff that I need to do. So where does this tool come in that kind of makes that a little better, easier, more efficient?
1: Yep. So... Um First, let me just make the clarification because we, we talked about two different things in this, is there's a difference between task management and time management. So task management is figuring out what you need to do, and time management is figuring out when to do it and how long to spend on it. So the stuff you're doing on the calendar, setting setting aside your time blocks, scheduling your time blocks is time management, and then the task stuff is the task management. The aftermath is primarily time management, but then includes some task management in there. So the first step of the three-step process is what is called this commit step. And you can do this even with a task manager as well. Might be a little bit tricky, but you can think of it as you want to create your daily commitment list. So take the entire task list and copy over only the things that you're committing to do today. And if you want to subtask those out, you can do that too, um, but just kind of copy over just those. Um, And then in Day Optimizer, if you do have something where you've got those steps, but it's a multi-day thing, you can actually create a checkmark list within each actual task. Um, But now I've got the list of just the things I'm working on today. So I've kind of removed all the overdue items, anything. So that should be a much more narrower list. So that's the first thing. The second thing you want to do to become more effective, and so if you just do the commitment list, that's going to make you more productive. The second thing is to then go in, allocate time to each of those. So in the original paper version of this, I would actually, every day, I'd sit down with an index card and write down everything I wanted to do. And this includes, because we're doing time management, this doesn't include just my task list. This is all my appointments for the day. Anything that takes up time, like eating lunch, exercise, meditation, anything that's going to take up time in your day. And many freelancers and entrepreneurs will weave their work and their personal life together. So oftentimes you have to account for all those. All that goes on the list. So that's your commitment list. It has all your tasks, appointments, and activities. Mm-hmm. Then you go through and you mark off and say, okay, I'm going to spend 15 minutes for this, a half an hour for this, an hour for this. And you allocate time for everything. And so that's setting the expectation for how long I want to work on that, right? And now you could just stop there too. At that point, you might want to then just kind of, if you're stopping there, just total everything up and find out how many hours you allocated. You probably over and then you need to kind of cross stuff off. Mm. If you then do the third step with the scheduling, if you're doing this on paper, you actually use another index card and you write nine o'clock or eight o'clock whenever you start your day, pick a task from your task list, write it down, add the duration to that. So if I start at nine, and I'm gonna work on this thing for an hour and a half, 10.30 is my next time, write down my next task. That helps you block out your day and immediately see, again, you don't have enough time in your day Because you allocated too much and now you go through this prioritization process but it's not in um it's a very concrete prioritization process because you're making trade-off decisions you now have your list of what you want to do today so now it's like do i do a or b am i going to do marketing today or am i going to like write that proposal you know which one am i going to do because i don't have enough time for both and i know i don't have enough time for both because i've just shown through this process, I don't have enough time for both. Um, So that's when you start getting into the reasoning about your time and time management. Um, And then at the end of that, you'll have this daily schedule. And then you can follow the daily schedule. There's lots of value to that. Or you could even just use that as this is my target list. I now know um, exactly what I can achieve today and I can kind of work down that list. But yeah, so that's the basic process. You can do it on paper. You can do it. day optimizer optimizes that process obviously
2: that's great that's great yeah as as you're talking about it and as I'm on your website dayoptimizer.com i'm realizing jesus i need this it's um it's i'm not getting everything done and and like you said maybe i'm just not managing my own expectations in terms of like what i can get done in the amount of time that's given and as entrepreneurs you know there's there's always spontaneous things especially now working from home more with family and other obligations that just crop up then Um, you know, this seems like a really wonderful tool that can help me personally manage. So I'm looking, so is this based mostly into desktop or uh, web based?
1: It is a web app. So what that means is you can use it on a desktop or you can actually install it as an app on your phone. It's not available in the app store, but you can like, I have it on my phone installed as an app and you just load it up like any other app. So
2: love it. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Yeah, brother. So, this is all good stuff. Uh man, really about business, life, uh your personal life. And oh yeah, let's talk about really quick, but talk about personal stuff if you want to give uh, you know, a shout out to to what we mentioned earlier today about um a new podcast that your mom's launching, but then also let's help people how they can reach you and how they can g- get this wonderful tool in their
1: life. Yep, totally. So, first my my mom is launching a new podcast uh, called Kick-Ass Boomers. Her name is Terry Balbear. And it is going to be a podcast telling the stories of extraordinary boomers, people who are like not like sinking into retirement and just disappearing, but really embracing life uh, in their later years. So she'll be interviewing different so people cool. around that. Um, and that will be launching in July or August.
2: It's the best podcast name ever. <laughs> and it will be available at kickassboomers.com.
1: You can go for that. It's very cool. And then to find me and Day Optimizer, you can go to DayOptimizer.com. And um, we're also at DayOptimizer app on Twitter or DayOptimizer on uh, Facebook. And you can reach me personally at Trevor at DayOptimizer.com. And I always encourage, we have a seven-day trial, but if anyone has any questions, just write me. I'm happy to talk about time management or productivity in general. I've got lots of years. And even if it's not related to DayOptimizer, I'm always happy to answer a question here and there.
2: Awesome, brother. Well, appreciate you. Thanks for all you do and all you've built and created, and you know, passing on a lot of this knowledge here in this short amount of time. But yeah, if you, anyone wants to reach out or look at what Trevor's doing, as you mentioned, DayOptimizer.com. And thanks again, brother, for being on the show. Appreciate you.
1: Thanks so much for having me. It was great.
2: That's it for now, folks. If you'd like to stay in touch with the show, you can contact me directly at eric at onairbrands.com. That's Eric, E-R-I-K, at onairbrands.com. And if you aren't already subscribed to the show, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or any other podcast